0: This week, on Myths and Legends, it's the story of Tom Thumb. And you'll see how if you take your child to work for the day, make sure they don't get eaten by a cow, or a raven, or pudding. Really, if those things keep happening, maybe parenting isn't for you. The creature this time is just a completely normal trout, with a massive amount of chest hair. This is Myths and Legends, episode 108. Thumbs up. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today, it's the story of Tom Thumb, perhaps the oldest English fairy tale. I don't want to give too much away, so we'll talk about the many different versions after the story, but we'll start today's story with Tom's future parents helping out a curiously familiar face. The beggar's hands shook as he raised the piece of bread to his mouth. He made quick work of it, then drank as much milk as the couple would give him. To a distracting level, he ignored the foam in his mustache and little rivulets of warm, unpasteurized milk that ran down his beard as he thanked the pair and remarked that... Given that they had food to eat, and they were in their 50s, and not dead yet, by the medieval world standard, they were doing pretty well. Why did they look so sad? The husband hung his head. It was children. They had always wanted children, but they had never been able to have them. The wife spoke up, saying that she would be the happiest person in the world if she could have a son. Even if the boy was no bigger than her husband's thumb, she would be satisfied. She followed with a dip of her head. That was, of course, mostly hyperbole. But also that baby would be much easier to birth and... Wait, why was the beggar smiling like he knew something? The beggar shook his head. He didn't know what they were talking about. The couple pursed their lips. Was the beggar sure... Was he sure he wasn't actually Merlin? The beggar swore on the life of his father that he was not. He was, but the couple mostly believed that he wasn't lying always a rookie mistake when it comes to Merlin. When their guest had finished his meal, he stood and left and the couple watched him hobble off down the road. Helping but also kind of not at all helping, Merlin used his magic to impregnate the woman with a child no larger than her husband's thumb. Mainly because he wanted to be helpful but also mainly because he thought that would be really fun to see. Three months later, the baby was born after about 12 minutes of labor something. The parents, true to their word, loved the baby. A few days later, as the mother sat talking to her newborn, the queen of fairies appeared, hovering over her baby's crib. Now, despite this being an English fairy tale and changelings completely being a thing, that is, trolls or goblins or other scary creatures coming to steal children in the night and replace them with their own children because raising human babies was fashionable, The mother took the appearance in stride and watched the queen of the fairies call her fairy attendants to her as she sang a poem. I'll spare you the overly flowery verse, but as she sang, the attendants dressed the child in an oak leaf hat, spiderweb shirt, stockings of apple rind tied with an eyelash, mouse skin shoes, and feather trousers, which actually sound really comfortable. They also named the baby, Tom Thumb. The mother liked this name enough that she went on to choose it for her son, but she did wait until the fairies left, and then took all those clothes off because it was bedtime, and he didn't need to sleep in mouse skin shoes, and also she should really wash those. So, Tom Thumb grew up. Well, in a sense. He grew no bigger than his father's thumb, but he did make friends his own age. What he lacked in height, he made up for in intelligence and trickery. Also, he knew magic. Maybe. One time, the boys were out playing with their cherry stones a game which no amount of Googling will help me understand. Tom would always lose his first, but he could easily sneak into his friend's bags and steal theirs. Unfortunately, he grew careless, and one day a boy noticed his friend in his pocket, rooting around for his stones. Tom popped his head out to see all the other boys glaring at him, and before he could climb out of the rest of the bag, the boy cinched it around his neck, trapping him. To teach him not to steal from them again, the group shook the bag of What was either cherry pits or clams, I'm not sure, and those items, being between bowling ball and cinder block size for little Tom, bruised him all over. Limping and maybe worrying about internal bleeding, Tom emerged from the bag and told him he was sorry, but he wanted to show them a trick that would impress their parents. He waited until his mom was out and took all the boys back to his cottage where, in the hovering dust, rays of light streaked across the small house. Tom took a pot and hung it on a sunbeam. The boys were amazed. In fact, he hung just about everything he could on a sunbeam. Then, he let the other boys try their hands at it, and they hung their stuff on sunbeams as well. They remarked that they had no idea you could hang stuff on sunbeams, and Tom smiled. Yeah, that's why they had never been able to hang stuff on it. But the boys knew now, and so that evening, they should all go home to their respective houses, and without telling their parents what they were doing and ruining the surprise, they should grab the most valuable most breakable thing that their parents owned and hang it on a sunbeam. It would be super fun and their parents would be so impressed. The boys thanked Tom Thumb, ran home and promptly shattered any expensive items their parents owned. Tom Thumb was not allowed to go out with those boys again on account of all the death threats flying around so he stayed home with his mom. When it comes to kitchen safety, it's kind of not a great idea to let your kids play around a hot stove. It's an even worse idea to let your two inch tall son dance on the rim of your pudding container, just as you're about to put it in the oven. Also, I would imagine that this pudding isn't the sweet goopy stuff that we know in the US, but a savory dish like Yorkshire pudding. Anyway, the distinction didn't really matter to Tom, because he lost his footing on the greasy rim, as his mom told him to jump down because she was putting it in the oven. And so, Tom plopped right into the dish. He tried to scream, but found his mouth was full of delicious pudding. And so his mom, thinking that he had leapt away and found something else to do in their spacious one-bedroom shack, put the food in the oven. Tom found an air pocket and quickly surfaced, but he was barely able to breathe in the burning air of the oven. He dove down to the still cool center. In the end, Tom barely survived the ordeal. It's a fairy tale, so that works in his favor but also maybe the dish was underbaked, and somehow the center remained cool enough to not boil a child alive. Burned and unconscious and subsisting on a quickly diminishing air bubble in the center, Tom was pulled from the oven and his mom set the pudding on the windowsill to cool. With a gasp, Tom came to in the center of the pie and screamed. His mom jumped at the sound of a shrieking pie. Clearly, the pie was possessed and so she promptly threw it out into the street a traveling metal worker was only about 20 paces off, when he saw the pudding hit the road and, well, hey, free road pudding. He dropped his pack and ran to the pudding before any animals got to it, and scooped what pudding had remained in the tin to a pouch he, apparently kept specifically for possessed road pudding that he found on the ground. There are some differences in what happens next, as, dangling from the metal worker's pudding sack, and trying not to be suffocated by greasy mincemeat, Tom Thumb made a sound. The later, tasteful versions say that Tom, again, screamed, and the man had the same reaction as his mother. The earliest version, written in around the 1600s, say that the metal worker, who thought he was alone, let out a massive fart as he walked back to the pack he dropped. Tom, who is in mortal danger, but who's also a preteen boy, laughed out loud. The metal worker, hearing a guffaw emanating from his side, tore the sack from his body and threw it away understanding why it was thrown out in the first place and not wanting to deal with a demon who was going to judge him for his farts. Tom slowly worked to the top of the bag and, by nightfall, he was back home, badly burned and washing the mincemeat smell out of his spiderweb shirt. Weeks after the pudding incident, Tom Thumb was out in the field with his mom. He was riding on the edge of a milk bucket this time and, seeing the grass sway in the distance, he knew he was in for some trouble. He tried to yell, but his mom was off doing something else when the wind took him. The soft breeze hit him in his oak leaf cap and he fell from the edge of the milk bucket, landing hard on the grass. The fall knocked the wind out of him. So again, he couldn't scream as the cow dropped down to take a bite out of the grass. He found his voice after avoiding cow teeth long enough to be swallowed. The mother thought she heard one of the cows calling her name but laughed it off. Cows couldn't talk. Now where was her thumb-sized son that had been given to them by a wizard? Hey. Hey, Mom, Tom said, sitting on a stone in the field and waiting for his mom two days later. She could see he was caked in dirt, tears streaming down her face. She couldn't believe it. She thought he was dead, that surely he'd been trampled or something. She had been looking for him for two days. She ran to her son and, oh, oh wow, no, that, mm, that wasn't dirt. Tom nodded as she caught a whiff of what had happened to him. He didn't want to talk about it. He just wanted to go home, sear his skin with water he knew would never be hot enough to get the smell out and never speak of this again. On the ride home, he asked his mom if she knew how many stomachs a cow had. He knew she didn't, but he sure did. Four. It was four. It wasn't just a straight shot either. And it became so, so much worse later on. He looked at her earnestly. Really, if you hear panic screaming again, I'm not a demon-possessed pudding or a talking cow. You have a kid that's the size of your husband's thumb and I'm probably in trouble. Mom, I really feel like these mix-ups shouldn't keep happening. A few years later, Tom sat munching on, like, a sandwich 1-100th the size of a normal sandwich. I guess that's one benefit of raising a child smaller than your index finger. It's cheap. The downside was that nearly every danger was amplified 1,000 times. Case in point, Tom thought he saw a shadow pass by out of the corner of his eye, and he froze mid-bite. He looked up at the sky. Nope, must have been a cloud or something. He took another bite and froze again. Okay, he definitely saw a shadow that time, which meant, bird, bird. Tom threw it on his sandwich and ran for cover, but two meters was like 200 meters for us, and the bird caught him before he made it to his doorway. The raven, flying higher and higher into the air with its prey, probably thought that this weird little worm was a bit of a freebie, Most things struggled, but this one slipped right into his mouth. That, however, was when the raven felt it. Tom's teeth sinking into its tongue, pulling and tearing at it. The bird squawked in pain, and Tom seized his opportunity. He kicked off into the blue, covered in raven blood, and fell to the earth. When he was in the raven's mouth, he thought that anything was better than being eaten by a bird. That if he was going to die, it was going to be on his terms. Now, seeing the castle below quickly rising to meet him, he wasn't so sure about that. It was sheer luck that he splashed down in a pond in the courtyard that was about three feet deep, deep enough that Tom didn't hit the bottom. He surfaced, panting, out of the pond and onto the warm stone edge. He was no doubt miles from home by now and had just survived being picked up by a raven and dropped from a height of what would be miles in the air to a full-grown adult. Tom was lucky to be alive. And... Surely, that same luck would help him find his way home. These were the thoughts that were going through his head, as he took one step and slipped on the slick blood. Nursing a scraped arm, Tom stood and surveyed the courtyard. There were bodies. Bodies everywhere. Knights, ladies, servants, slaves. The knights alone were little more than a crumpled ball of iron and flesh. Even before he felt the ground shaking, he knew what it was. One of the gates had been ripped from the front of the castle and thrown into the courtyard. Giants. Grumble the giant, who showed that you can slaughter an entire castle, but still have an adorable name, found Tom before he was back on his feet. Despite having a whole week of dinner spoiling in the courtyard around him, the giant thought that he could trade himself to this little fun-sized human, and ate Tom thumb in one gulp. Then he got back to doing whatever it is that giants do after they take over a castle. I guess like painting, putting in a new backsplash, and redoing the bathroom, that sort of stuff. Unfortunately, Grumble's plans to flip the castle were cut short, by the very short man causing him some very painful stomach problems, narrowly avoiding the giant's dripping stomach acid. And I know cows have stomach acid too, please don't email me about this. Tom hung from the monster's esophageal sphincter. Gurgles from the giant's stomach bubbling in the darkness below and Tom kicked. He wailed on the side of the giant's stomach, scraped at it, bit at it, and then really wished he hadn't bitten at it. He did anything to cause the giant pain. He did this until his grip started to slip. He knew that he wouldn't last long in the stomach acid, and even if he did survive, he had already been out that exit before. That wasn't something he ever wanted to do again. The giant felt the pangs in his stomach as he was in the dining room, deciding between color swatches, at first, he thought the little guy would just pass through, but he could feel that the pain wasn't going away. Then, he felt a gurgle and knew that his pain was going to be over almost immediately. He ran as fast as he could to throw up in the sea. Tom knew that he was effective when he felt the walls of the stomach violently spasming around him. He grimaced and dropped down into the stinking, half-digested contents of the giant stomach before going on the very worst water slide. He found himself, for the second time that day, careening through the blue, but this time he was accompanied by giant vomit. It was not an improvement. Thankfully, he ended up in the sea this time, and he swam downward, away from the clouds of vomit, and began scrubbing up from his shirt and pants before he came up for air. With the vomit clear, Tom made his way to the surface, thinking about his long trip home, but telling himself that he would stay safe. He was going to be okay. That was when the fish ate him. We'll see Tom's long aquatic journey to another familiar face, but that will be right after this. Free. Renews automatically, cancels anytime. King Arthur was in a bad mood. He thought that marrying the most beautiful woman in the realm and establishing the round table, a round table around which sat the greatest knights in the world, would be awesome. But nothing was working out as he'd hoped. Managing these knights was like looking after homicidal toddlers. They were always getting into something, fighting with each other and causing problems. Just last month, Gawain came back with a woman's head dangling from his neck after a pack of angry dogs wrecked Arthur's Banquet. Episode 67A for the curious. And Guinevere? Guinevere was great, but as his wife, she was really the only one comfortable saying that by not going out adventuring and exercising, and instead doing pretty much the exact opposite of that, and drinking wine at feasts every night, Arthur might not actually fit into the armor he wore in college anymore. Arthur countered that he could if he wanted to, but all that armor was out of style now anyway. So, you know, Didn't even matter, he wasn't even going to try. But, as such, it was fish again tonight, which was good, he guessed. He stuck a fork in his fish, and the fish screamed out a, Hey! Arthur jumped and dropped his fork, as the side of the fish began to beat and bow out. Finally, one mouse skin boot came out, then another, and soon, Tom stood on Arthur's plate. Hi! Tom greeted Uh, your servants aren't cooking your fish enough. It should really get up to an internal temp of about 145 degrees Fahrenheit. And also, hi there, my name's Tom. Thank you for not eating me. That's not something I should have to say to a stranger immediately upon meeting him, but it's been a long week. Tom, having brought Arthur's first happiness in weeks, was invited to sit and have dinner with the king. They got a fresh fish that did not contain a tiny person, and Tom ate his from a thimble. Tom, happy to not have his life threatened by literally everything and everyone, enjoyed his meal. A tiny room, clothes, and dishes were all made for Tom, and he became not only an oddity of King Arthur's court that people came from miles around to see, but a friend to the legendary king. Tom went everywhere with Arthur. Maybe it was Tom's easygoing nature and non-threatening personality. Maybe it was the fact that he was very easy to pack for and could ride around in Arthur's pocket. I also imagine that Tom, as we've established, was pretty clever and a good conversation partner. Anyway, he lived with Arthur for months, but Tom's new friend could tell that something was on his mind. Finally, one day at tiny dinner, Tom shared that he missed his parents. They were probably beside themselves with grief, too, because last they knew, he had been snatched up by a raven, Arthur beamed. He would be happy to help Tom find his way home, and Tom told the king the address. Oh, really? I had no idea your parents lived there, Arthur said. What? What is it? Is the place destroyed? Is it in a foreign land hostile to your kingdom? What? Tom's getting more and more panicked. No, no, nothing like that. It's just, it's right there. It's just a half mile outside the gate. Like, just look outside. You can see their house. Tom stared outside and grinned. Oh, well, uh, can we go there? 48 hours later, Tom walked up to the house that was basically in the shadows of the walls of Camelot, and his parents rejoiced. Their son that they thought was dead had been returned to them. He, of course, wore the finest tiny clothes. No amount of dry cleaning could get the vomit and fish smell out of his spiderweb shirt, and there were better materials to make shoes out of than mouse fur, like pretty much any material. He was also rich, kind of. He was carrying his body weight in cash, but it was his body weight in cash. Before he left Camelot, Arthur gave his new best friend a rare offer. He could go into the treasury and take whatever he could carry out, which was actually a really unintentionally cruel reward to give to a kid that's three inches tall, but Tom was still grateful. He packed the three pence he could drag from the king's treasury in a bubble backpack, about which I am not joking. Unfortunately, King Arthur could spare three pence, but couldn't spare a horse or a ride of any type and Tom had to walk a half mile from Camelot to his parents' place, with the heavy coins in a bubble backpack. It took him 48 hours, and he had enough time to smile at his parents, before he collapsed on their doorstep. It was a long recovery. His mother placed him in a walnut shell and set him by the fire, letting him eat a whole hazelnut in three days. A hazelnut used to last him a whole month, and also that's really bad for children. Do not give them one type of food for a month, they might die. Tom had a standing invitation to come hang out at King Arthur's court, and a few weeks later, he was ready to go. The only issue, well, other than having to walk half-mile being only a few inches tall, was that it was also rainy. He couldn't walk three feet outside without sinking up to his waist in the mud. A few more days of complete and utter medieval boredom, and Tom's mother tapped him on the shoulder, and most of his head, he was very small. She presented him with a glider. She made it out of some cloth and sticks, and she was certain it could fly. She tested it with a frog, The frog died, of course, but he couldn't drive it and didn't have this adorable nutshell helmet she had crafted. Anyway, if her non-existent calculations were correct, he could stand on her hand and, with just a puff of wind, be taken all the way to Camelot. Medieval boredom being like 72 times more potent than normal boredom, Tom Thumb decided that he liked those odds, donned the tiny helmet, and kissed his mom goodbye. She brought the glider up to her mouth and blew and Tom took off. Despite birds, winds, and the questionable workmanship of a 6th century flying device, Tom rose on the winds and saw himself floating toward King Arthur's castle. And Tom missed wide. Not so wide that he plummeted to the streets below, but he went a few rooms down and a few rooms over and zipped right in through an open window. Tom could see that he was heading for a pot of boiling soup and looked down to see a basket of lettuce heads below. Knowing that a few bruises and broken bones were preferable to death by soup, he bailed on his mom's glider and heard the crunch of the lettuce, but thankfully, not of his bones. He watched the glider follow its current trajectory and splash down into the soup. And the boiling soup splash up into the eyes of the cook, who screeched and ran from the room. Tom was still working his way off the lettuce pile and fighting off the mice in the shadows of the kitchen when the guards came in the room and, threw burns and boils on his face, the cook pointed one accusing finger at Tom. Unfortunately, Arthur was occupied on matters of state. Tom was put into a mousetrap to await trial for high treason. The mousetrap wasn't at all like the classic snap and kill mousetrap, but rather a no-kill trap that lured in mice before slamming down a door. Tom could see out of his dropping cover of prison. And other things, well, they could see in. Namely, one of the cats that lived in the castle. Seeing something caught in the mousetrap, it started coming around to the dungeons a lot more. Then, one morning while the jailer was out, Tom made himself look as appetizing as possible so that the cat couldn't resist. She batted at the tiny cage and Tom helped his wooden prison over the edge. It shattered when it hit the ground and Tom was free. The cat noiselessly padded to the ground next to him. Without the cage protecting him, the cat seemed a lot bigger. Still, Tom hadn't survived being baked into a pudding and being eaten by a cow, a raven, a giant, and a fish, just to die on the floor of a dungeon. He picked up one of the wood splinters, narrowed his eyes, and went to work. Four days later, Tom, the battered and cut, thumb-sized hero, sheathed this wooden sword, threw open the doors to King Arthur's throne room, slowly. In fact, he had enough time to snag a few bites from the strawberry he had taken from the kitchens a couple of days ago, on his trek up from the dungeons. He had hoped to arrive to the throne room in gasps. Hours after he escaped, people rushed past him down the hall, and found blood, cat hair, and a shattered mousetrap. They assumed that he had been killed by the cat, so no one went looking for him. Tom knew he had to talk to Arthur before anyone else, his old friend would understand that he had been wrongly accused of treasonous soup defilement. It wasn't quite as epic or dramatic as he had hoped. Tom strode across the room with a swagger. And, after a brisk 30-minute walk, he was nearly underfoot Arthur when Arthur finally noticed him. The king, far from being angry or calling his guards, swept Tom up in his hands and hugged him as tightly as he could without killing him. Tom tried to explain about the soup and the glider, but Arthur didn't even care. He was going to release him when he learned that Tom had died. And there was something he could do to ensure that Tom never had to deal with that level of disrespect again, and that Tom could hang around Camelot. Arthur could knight Tom Thumb. Okay, you're joking, right? Yvain burst, looking at his opponent in the tournament. Hey, Don't knock the little guy. He's undefeated, Arthur said with a smirk, looking at Sir Thomas Thumb in his armor and mounting his noble mouse steed. Yeah, that's because no one can hit him, Yvain replied. He's a three-inch tall knight riding a mouse. This is ridiculous, even for us, and that's saying a lot. Arthur replied that Yvain was welcome to forfeit if he wanted to. But how would that look? Yvain sighed. All right. He put on his helmet and found his horse. I legitimately have no idea how Tom won any of these fights. As we've talked about, middle age armor is kind of heavy, so maybe he just wore the knights down until they finally collapsed and gave up. With Yvain, I like to imagine that he tried a bit more, got his lance stuck in the ground from horseback, flipped and was carried off the tournament grounds unconscious. Either way, Sir Thomas Thumb stood victorious and received the Queen's favor much to the very obvious displeasure of a young French knight who had just joined the court. For his time, Tom Thumb was the greatest knight in King Arthur's court. But his time, like Tom Thumb himself, was running short. The original, the very first manuscript telling the story of Tom Thumb, published in the 1600s, stops with him being named the best knight in King Arthur's kingdom. Unfortunately for Tom, a poem picks up the story a decade or so later, and tells of Tom Thumb's death there are two main ways little Tom was said to die. In the poem, he was on the business end of a woman's sneeze and globs of mucus covered his face. His fellow knights hurried to clean him off, but it was already too late. Tom became sick and died. He was given a funeral and everyone in Camelot attended to celebrate the life of King Arthur's best knight. In later versions, Tom Thumb gets frodo He was taking a shortcut through one of the walls in the castle at Camelot, and found that a spider had made her web over the other entrance. Seen as a normal spider to Tom, was she lob-sized and without a Samwise Gamgee close behind to save him, Tom was bitten and wrapped up. A servant found him, already deathly pale, and picked him from the web. Sir Thomas Thumb succumbed to the spider's poison, and died, surrounded by friends admirers, and in the presence of King Arthur himself. The story of Tom Thumb is as varied as it is absolutely crazy. This one was based off some of the original versions, with stories from the later ones thrown in. In the earliest, the queen of the fairies gives him an enchanted hat, that lets him know whatever he wants whenever he wants it, a ring of invisibility, a shape-changing girdle, and shoes that can take him anywhere in a moment. When a guy the size of a thumb can change size and travel anywhere he wants at will, it kind of defeats the purpose of it being a Tom Thumb story, but whatever. There are way too many variations to count. It's been adapted into children's stories, plays, operas, and movies. The originals were intended for adults, but in the 1800s they started to get sanitized for children. If you're looking for a version that's not 17th century verse, Dina Mulock's 1863 version keeps most of the vulgarity, and Tom ends up going on some more adventures. I've linked it in the show notes and on the site. I want to say thanks to PETA 1, page 3721, Fatty Essidine, and Wax, Pippa D89, Ice Rose, Braypaw, R. Morris XX, Becky1234554321, 1, one, bluish Green Pro, Zombie Killer Dave, keep it up, Dave, May from Melbourne, hi, bub, Jonah Wynn, Wednesday's Shadow, Razamataz, and Steve Ud For the reviews on Apple Podcasts, thank you all so much. It's great to hear from you. And if you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is still the best place, and you can find the show there at Apple. Mythpodcast.com. There is also a membership on the site. For less than the price of one gram of Scorpion Venom, that you can buy online for some reason, you can get like 10 years of extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad-free versions of the show. Seriously, Scorpion Venom is like $600 a gram, and I have no idea why. Anyway, check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the fur-bearing trout. From North America and Iceland, if you've ever wondered how fish can stay alive in freezing cold water, I have a very scientific solution. Fur coats. And, on the Vermont-Quebec border, the fur-bearing trout needs it. This trout has white fur all over its body, and if you decide to go fishing for one, you have two options. And, neither of them are all that great. The first is to wait around until very early spring, and catch the fur-bearing trout before it molts. It's a very short window to catch that delicious hairy fish, and you have to try to avoid the warden. Back in the day, there was a catch and release policy when it came to fur-bearing trout, and the wardens walked around with a Brannock device. You know, that metal thing you put your foot into at shoe stores, that measures the width and length of your foot. If you caught a fur-bearing trout and it wasn't long enough, catch and release. If you caught one and it was long enough, catch and a new pair of fishy slippers. They were the perfect size and shape for fuzzy slippers you just had to scrape your fish dinner out of them first. The other method for catching them, was to do it in the middle of winter. There was one issue with this, being that the fish, like the funeral mountain terror shot, couldn't take the heat, of Canada in the winter, and it would immediately overheat and explode. If you got lucky and didn't lose a hand, you might be able to piece together enough of the fur for a glove or something, and pick enough of the fish off the side of your shanty for a lunch. There are a couple different origin stories, The first being the one we talked about, that some fish just evolved to enjoy the yeti look. The second origin story, was the fateful day that a carriage carrying several jugs of hair tonic overturned in the river, leading to a bunch of hairy fish. In that story, they were very easy to catch. They didn't like the hair, and fishermen just had to sit on the edges of the riverbanks with a razor or pair of scissors, offering the frugal fish a free trim or a shave. Another definitely not real origin of the fur-bearing trout, was when a Scottish man wrote a letter back home from Iceland in the mid-17th century, telling his relatives of the varied, quote, furried animals and fish. Because it was, I guess, ambiguous whether or not furried modified fish, and the early modern period, I guess, at a really low bar for comedy, word of this hilarious fish got around, and a legend was born. But that's the fake origin story. The real one is obviously the fish being hit by some unsolicited Rogaine and falling for the fisherman barbers. Obviously. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band, Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes, and today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and edited and produced by Carissa Weiser. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Myth Podcast, and find more info on MythPodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.